Amen. Thank you, worship team. Children are being dismissed at this time. Would you join me? Acts chapter number 8. I hope you caught what uh, we're just saying together in the next to the last song. I hope you caught what it said. As you're turning to Acts 8, if I could illustrate that for a moment. I like sports. I know some of you like sports. Some of you don't care about sports. Some of you hate sports. I know we have that. Um, think about this. Here's this person right here. This may be you this morning. I don't know what you're doing. But I know what you've done. And I know how this story ends. Let that sink in. I'm going to get to Acts 8 in a second. You, some, one person may need this. kind of hit me a while ago. If we're in a game and the clock says what quarter it is and the score at the moment doesn't look like it's going to end up in our favor, we're here in this moment of time and we don't know what God's doing. looks like we're losing, but here's what we do know. We know what he's already done and we have a massive advantage. I love watching live sports. But it, I'm going to tell you, it just tears me out of my frame when I care. If I'm watching a game, I don't care. It doesn't matter. But if my team is in it, man, I kind of like, oh. And I'm, I'm riding and falling with every missed shot, made shot. You know what's fun? Is when you've DVR'd the game and you've already checked the score, which you told yourself you wouldn't do, but you got so curious and you're like, I don't even know if I even want to watch that game if we lose. And you know you win and you see it. Through there, like, man, we're not playing well. It doesn't look like it's going our way. But if you know, I know how this ends. Christian, I don't know what you're going through. For a brief moment there, I saw myself, and I am in the mosh pit, just jumping at the feet of Christ. That's, I know that's where I end up. So whatever happens here, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That's how it ends. Acts chapter number 8. Here's our scene. A man named Stephen has been put to death by the high council, the high court in the land of Israel. And in essence, this was Israel's like last refusal and rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. Stephen, chapter number 7, gave this awesome defense, showed the plan of God through the Old Testament and how the death of Christ had done away with the need for all the sacrifices. And yet, for all that he said, all the truth that he brought, they never refuted his truth. They just put him to death by stoning what we learned last week was that kicked off a major, I mean, that very day that Stephen was put to death, this great man of God, guys, listen, probably one of the 25, 30 all-time best Christians, like we're talking about one of the all-time best Christians, they put him to death, and that sparked a massive, a massive devastating, in some ways, persecution of the church. And so the church that, of Jews that had been housed for years right there in Jerusalem, suddenly they're fleeing out of Jerusalem, running for their lives. The apostles stay, and some other Christians stay, but now they're running for their lives. And it's, that persecution is being spearheaded by a man named Saul of Tarsus. We'll get to him again in chapter number 9 when we get there. But verse number 4 last week says that now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This was the, one of the biggest backfires in the history of the world. We're going to persecute and stamp out these Christians. But it ended up only spreading Christianity as they go. And as they go, they're sharing the gospel. And they're evangelizing and they're preaching. And more people are actually getting saved. And now the gospel has gone to Samaria. And we're given this three verses last week. Three, four, ver four uh, three by this, about this man named Philip. And so Philip, as he goes to Samaria, 
God uses him to perform miracles, helpful miracles. And as he does, he starts teaching and preaching about Christ. And people end up putting their faith and trust in Christ, as we will see. And great joy came to that city. So is everybody with me? You say, now remember who the Samaritans are. They're half Jew. So we had the southern Old Testament. We had the southern tribes of Israel. And then we had the ten northern tribes of Israel. And there was contention between these two once they split. And they had some civil wars. But they hit a point where the northern tribes were conquered by the Assyrians, carried away as exiles, and then some Gentiles were brought in their place. And the remaining Jews of the northern tribes intermarried with the Gentiles and ended up coming up with what we now have in the New Testament, the Samaritans, half Jew, half Gentile. There is an extreme animosity between these two groups. There already was, but once the southern Jews saw that those northern tribes intermarried with Gentiles while they stayed pure. Man, there was really a lot of contention. They get, didn't get along. But now, this man of God, this Jewish man of God named Philip, fleeing from persecution, ends up coming to Samaria, and he has the love and the desire and the knowledge, and he shares the gospel. And they actually listen to him because of the signs and the wonders that God did through him and how much it helped them as a people. But now that brings us to verse 9. Let's read verses 9 through 25, if you would, this morning. 9 to 25, there's a lot that is happening in this text. And I want to invite you, even, you ought to be praying. I hope you come to church praying, Lord, open my eyes. Verse number 9. But there was a man. So there's great joy in Samaria, particularly this city where Philip has preached. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. We just learned two things. This man does magic, and his message is, I'm great. I'm great. Hey, how'd it go today? It was great. Did you go into town? Yep. Anything exciting? Well, Simon was back down there. Oh, what's he doing today? More amazing stuff. Oh, did he say anything? He's great. Oh, okay. Still doing it? Yep. Oh, that's his message. He's great. And you're thinking, that's kind of silly. No, verse 10. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest. I mean, the lowest ranking to the highest ranking. The least intelligent to the most intelligent. I mean, they all bought into this. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. Saying, this was what they thought. This man is the power of God that is called great. The God that is called great, that's his power. Do you see how small they have God in their mind? Jesus was right in John 4 when he told the woman at the well that was a Samaritan. You worship, you know not what. These people. Think, the great God, that this man is his power. And he's doing some things. We're not denying that he didn't do some amazing things as people saw them. But to conclude, he's, they have him as deity in essence. Verse 11. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had been, he had amazed them with his magic. Been doing this a long time. He's the man of Samaria. He's great. He's the power of the God that is great. But... When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Already we're noticing a huge difference between Philip's ministry and what Simon does. But when, Philip, but when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So notice, they believed Philip's message about Jesus... We know back from verse 6, he preached the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. Here he's preaching the kingdom of God and Jesus as its Lord. 
And they believe, verse number 12. They were baptized, both men and women. So, I mean, they're ready to go public with their allegiance to Jesus. Now, notice verse 13. It's important. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. This sounds awesome. In fact, there is nothing in verse number 13 that gives any red flags whatsoever. Let me read it again. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Here's what we have. The guy that amazed the Samaritans is now amazed himself at Philip. Like, dude, what you do. And we have a reference of that back in verse 6 and 7. He casts out, and through him, God gives relief to people that had been oppressed and possessed by unclean spirits, demons and devils. Philip's doing that. People that had been paralyzed and that were lame and couldn't walk. Philip, God is bringing healing through Philip. And so this guy recognized, this is amazing. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, so now we're kind of shifting scenes. What's going on back? They're getting word of what's happening. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. Listen, received the word of God means somebody went and told them the gospel about Jesus. What happened? They actually listened. They understood it. They believed it. They've even gone public in their allegiance to Jesus by being baptized. What should happen? When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So out of the twelve, the twelve sinned Peter and John. The two probably could safely say the most respect. I'm not saying the most authoritative apostles. No doubt the two most respected. They sent Peter to them, Peter and John. Who came down and prayed for them. So they're now in Samaria. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Is everybody tracking here? Here comes Peter and John. They get to Samaria. They've heard they've received the word of God. They believe they've been baptized. And now Peter and John start praying, God, would you please... Pour down and give these people the Holy Spirit. And you're thinking, why do they need to pray that? Because of what verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Is this striking anything odd in your mind? They've only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I baptize you, my brother. I baptize you, my sister, in the name of Jesus. It's all. And this is not put in there as like, oh, now we know why they don't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't do their baptism right. Would you notice that Peter and John do not do rebaptisms and add to the phraseology of how they are baptized? That is not it. That's just some commentary of what's happening. Verse 16 again. So they come, they pray, God, would you give them the Holy Spirit? Why? For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Real clear. Now back to Simon. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the hands, of the apostles' hands, he sees it, he offers them money. I don't know if how much, he just says, I'll give you money. Or does he say, I'll give you this much money. Verse 19. Saying... Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. That is the most awesome thing I've ever seen. i got to be able to do that. i got some money. Hey, can I talk with you two guys right quick? Listen, i got money. 
I want to be able to do that. That's amazing. I mean, Philip, no offense. That's awesome. <laughs> this, this is the whole next level. I've got to be able to do this. I'll give you money. Verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Your heart's not right with God. You're not part of this. Translate. Repent, therefore. Peter's telling Simon, repent. So one Simon is talking to the other Simon. Simon Peter's telling Simon the magician, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. I see you're in the gall of bitterness. You're in the bond of iniquity. You ought to pray. You need to repent. You ought to pray that if possible, you'll be forgiven of this. If you are actually thinking and paying attention, y'all should be having like, wait, what? What, what, what? what does that mean? What's going, like, wow, how do we deal with this? Verse 24, how does Simon respond? Simon answered, pray to the Lord, pray for me to the Lord. In essence, Peter, but Peter and John, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And then we're not told anymore about him. We're given this report. Now when they had testified, Peter and John had testified their personal testimony and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now I'm not going to get really to verse 25 today. Let me just say it this way. They come, so we go north to south. They come from Jerusalem up to Samaria. They're not preaching the gospel to the Samaritans as they enter. But I believe that in light of verse 17, when they actually know that the Holy Spirit had come upon these people, now when they go back, they're now preaching. Man, we want in on this. God is actually saving the Samaritans. Having seen verse 17, they are now preaching the gospel as they make their way back to Jerusalem. Would you notice three things this morning? The first one should be very brief, I believe. Number one, Samaria was deceived by Simon's sorcery. Samaria was just definitely, deeply deceived by this man Simon's sorcery and magic. Verse 9, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying he, that, he, that, that he himself was someone great. You say, Jeff, what is this? What was happening? What was the nature of his powers. I can't tell you for sure. I don't know. I'm going to offer this. I, I would imagine it was a mixture of some things. He probably had some secret knowledge. He may have known some science. My best guess would be, I don't know what he did to have it or what connections were made, but it is very likely that Simon's magic is empowered by demonic forces. I'm not saying that's the only thing. I'm saying likely. I wouldn't die for this. But his, his magic is likely empowered by demonic forces. But the whole thrust of what he does is to magnify himself. So his magic, it's impressive. It is real. So there's a realness to it. No doubt some deception. But there's something about it that is real. And it's super impressive. And it magnifies him. And his message is, I am great. Look at what I can do. Now contrast that with Philip. And there's three things about Philip that are very different. Number one... Philip's miracles are empowered by God. Philip's miracles help 
people and Philip's miracles actually magnify the Lord Jesus Christ and exalt Him. That's two very different things. One helps no one and the other one helps people. One magnifies himself. So here we have Philip is exalting Christ. Simon is exalting himself. And I know you may be, uh, we have that note uh, at this time. You, as you're writing that, we're noting that self-promotion is never a sign of a godly life. Self, someone is constantly promoting themselves like Simon. That's not the sign of a godly life. And there's a lot of self-promotion that takes place, even in the name of the Lord. And so what appears to be happening is because for so long this man's put on a good show, and because he's constantly told them that he's great, they now are convinced that this man actually is the great power of God. Self-exaltation. I told you this point would be brief. I'm going to borrow just for a moment from William Barclay, who writes the following. It's going to take me a moment to get to your section. Hear what he writes. And really, it's probably more to me, but it is to others that are in the room even now. Barclay is correct in writing, Exaltation of self is ever the danger of the preacher and the teacher. Exaltation of self is ever the danger of the preacher and the teacher. I mean, man, you, you may have gone week after week, and that wasn't a problem, but it's always lurking. What's your motive? He's correct. Exaltation of self is ever the danger of the preacher and the teacher. He writes, it is true that the preacher and the teacher must kindle at the sight of men. I thought about that. What does it even mean? The teacher, the preacher, he has to kindle at the sight of men. In other words, when you're standing before people teaching or preaching, surely you must have some animation and some zeal and some fire and stir up because if you don't believe in your own message and you just monotone and just dull and bore it, how do you expect people to believe in the message if you don't actually believe in the message? He writes, It is true that the preacher and the teacher must kindle at the sight of men, but it is also true, as Denny said, that we cannot at one and the same time show that we are clever and that Christ is wonderful. Can't do both. And here's the thing. God knows every teacher and preacher's heart. He sees it clear as day. God knows the heart. And so no one, your teacher, your preacher, your speaker, when you speak, God knows your heart. He knows if there's something in you that it's like, I got two main goals. What's your main goal? I want people to see the wonder and glory of Christ. And I really hope they think I'm clever. Those cannot go together. You have Now, let's be honest. In a good Bible lesson or sermon, there is going to be knowledge and there's going to be understanding and there should be some wisdom in how it is applied. But that is never the goal of that person. The goal is, I want to give your attention to the Lord and to God. And that's what Philip does. Jesus taught people, you cannot serve God and money. You can't. No one can go through life and say, my two goals, and they're equal. I want to be as rich and as wealthy. I'll do anything to get money, and I want to have all the things that, the good things that I can buy with money, and I want to please God with my life and exalt Jesus. You cannot have both of those. I am not saying that, it, in fact, many people whose life does glorify the Lord, they do make money, but their whole attitude is, God has blessed me so that I can invest this back into the kingdom of God. You cannot do both. Preachers and teachers, can't, but I hope they think I'm clever today. Can't be the goal. Number two, 
Verses 12 through 17, the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Would you look again at verse number 12? But when they believed Philip, so they got Simon as a backdrop. Been going on for years. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. So this is important. I'm going to offer to you guys, nowhere in the text, previous to this, last week's text, or this one, does it even imply that Simon's magic helps anybody. The impression is it's done over there, apart from us. It's super impressive. It exalts him, but it doesn't help anybody. Wow, that's amazing. You really are great. But Philip, what he does and what he says, it's not about him. It is to help people. And his message actually has content. Great content. It's about the kingdom of God and how you can have access into the kingdom of God. And how Christ is the Lord over the kingdom of God. And so he's constantly shedding light and pointing attention. Look to Christ. The message is never about Philip. Simon's message and his magic is for him. Philip's miracles and his message are all about Christ. And the people hear it and they believe and they get saved. And then they, they believe in this salvation so much so that when Philip tells them, you need to get baptized and you need to go public, they take that step of baptism, which is important, to unashamedly, unashamedly, publicly tell everyone who's watching, I'm getting baptized because I want you to know I believe Jesus is the Lord. But he's not just the Lord, he's my Lord and he's my Savior. I am giving my allegiance to him and I want you to know that. I am going to live my life for Christ. He is my Lord now, not just my Savior. These people did that. But did you catch verse 16 because there was something unusual. The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them because they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to offer this. Guys, listen, I'm not, I wouldn't die for this. I'm going to propose it. That's confusing. Y'all know how we baptize. When we baptize someone, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do we do that? Because that was in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It appears that's not what happens here. So is this, like, wrong, unbiblical? I forget who it was, but one author, I thought, made a good point. And I did go back and look at Peter's message in chapter 2, verse number 38, where in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Peter tells the people there to repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that way? Why did this happen here? Could it be that because the Jews... And the half-Jews already worship the true God of the Bible. They already worship Him. The Jews have a covenant relationship, a covenant from God. And these half-Jews getting in on that. And so in other words, when they put their faith and trust in Christ, it isn't that they need to announce that we are now aligning ourselves with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. The new thing for them was to declare that this man, this man from Nazareth, who lived on earth and died on a cross and rose again, we believe that He is the eternal Son of God. By nature. He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lord, and we're being baptized in His name. But when we go into the uttermost parts of the earth, all these other nations that do not have a covenant with God, we need to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'll throw that out because this is kind of weird. Why did they only do that? But now we have a problem. We have two dilemmas in today's text, if you were paying attention. And we want to try to address those. 
Dilemma number one, these people are said to believe Stephen, uh, Philip's message, which means they've trusted Christ, they've received the Word of God, they've got saved. They've even gone so far as to be baptized, and yet they don't have the Holy Spirit. Why not? If you're taking notes, and I would invite you today to, if possible, at least maybe somebody that's with you, and you can get their notes later. Why did they not receive the Spirit? That's what I want to talk about the next few, the next few minutes. Write this down. The fact that verses 12 through 17 describes a two-stage initiation. So we need to get that in our mind. Very clearly what's being described here is in verse 12 they believed. So we're attaching salvation there. But they don't receive the Holy Spirit in verse number 17. The fact that this describes a two-stage initiation does not mean that a two-stage initiation is to still be expected today. Now, that's an easy statement. Write that down. We can all make it and move on and say, okay, that's great. Jeff says we are not to anticipate a two-stage initiation today. You say, does anybody today teach a two-stage initiation? Yes. By the way, if this is your first time with us or first time in a long time, There'll be a couple of points today where I'll say some specific things. This is I do not normally get up here and try to call out other and let's attack that and attack that. It fits today's message. I want to give you two groups of people in our country under the title of Christianity that believe and teach a two-stage initiation. Group number one. Again, under Christendom. Group one, the Roman Catholic Church teaches a two-stage initiation. I don't know all the ins and outs, but it's somewhere along this line. Stage one, baptism. It may be sprinkling a little baby. There's stage one. And they have beliefs about that. Notice we did not sprinkle or baptize Paris today. Okay, we prayed a prayer of dedication for her and her parents. We didn't do any of that. But the Catholic Church, phase one, stage one, baptism. And then stage two is at some point later, They are going to take their first Holy Communion is what they would teach. And then they're going to have what's called confirmation. And at the confirmation, the Catholic bishop, the Catholic priest is going to handle that baby. And therefore, at the confirmation, what they teach is that's when, having already had this stage, now they're going to actually receive the Holy Spirit and all the benefits that come with receiving the Holy Spirit. If someone was not baptized as an infant, they're going to be baptized later. And that that confirmation, I think it depends on when the baptism takes place. Usually the confirmation for the infant baptism is somewhere around seven or eight years old, I believe, from what I read briefly. Others, it could be like a junior in high school, 13 years old, or even now a junior in high school. And that may be they came later to their faith. And they've already been baptized, but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. And it's when this bishop confirms them in the faith. Now they're able to think and to reason for themselves, lay lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit and all the benefits that come with that. Second group. This is not all of this group. Please understand, this is not all of this group, but there are many Pentecostals who teach a two-stage initiation. Theirs goes like this. There is conversion. This is where a person truly gets saved. There's conversion, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Pay attention. And then later, at some point later on, They're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is going to be evidenced by speaking in tongues. That being stage two. Stage one, there's this conversion. Stage two, 
There's this receiving of the Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues. Hold your spot here. Follow me if you would. You'll, have, you'll get a little bit of a head start. Uh, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You'll hold there because in a moment I'm going to go to one other passage to actually tie this in. This is not on the screen. This one will not be on the screen. But I want you to, see, I want you to listen to these questions that Paul, the apostle, writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we say things. Do we have a Bible reason for why we say things? Had you write a note a while ago? We do not. It is not to be anticipated a two-stage initiation into our relationship with God in this day. Why would we say that? So here's this group that teach, and they teach it sincerely. There's conversion, and then later on there's the receiving of the Spirit. And they may even use this phrase, the anointing of the Spirit comes on this person, and then they speak with tongues. I will tell you, that phraseology, this idea of the anointing of the Spirit, that idea, the way it's put forth, is not found in the Bible. It is not found in the Bible. But notice verse number 29. Paul asks a question, 1 Corinthians 12. Are all apostles, I'm asking y'all this morning, yes or no, are all apostles? I couldn't hear you. No. Are all Christians apostles? No. Next question. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers, do all Christians have the gift of teaching? No. Do all Christians work miracles? No. Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No. These are obviously rhetorical questions. Do all interpret? No. So the idea that those who get the Spirit, they'll speak in tongues, Paul's very clearly saying and implying not all do that. And so you're now pigeonholing and saying only this group of people really have the Spirit. Well, how does that square with the rest of Scripture? And some may look at... And by the way, these groups that I just mentioned are going to pull heavily from Acts chapter 8. Going to pull heavily from Acts chapter 8. And the experience, the, the real events, these are real events that happen in Acts chapter number 8. Would you write this down? And then we want to defend it. The delay between Acts 12, 8 verse 12 and 8 verse 17. I'm going to propose to you this morning is an exception that occurs and is due to the transitional nature of the time period in the church, the early church. It is due to the transitional nature within the early church at this time. You're writing that. You're still in 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to come back there in a moment. But for now, would you just flip forward just a little bit to Romans chapter 8. We need to see two very clear verses that I want to propose why we would say... That what happened, what's happening in Acts chapter 8 is an exception that occurred during a transitional time period in the early church. Before I do that, everybody making your way to Romans 8. Now I'm going to ask you to put your, uh, what they used to tell us in elementary school, put your thinking cap on. Whatever the thinking cap is. Follow me. You with me? Here we go. Ask the Lord, Lord, I want to know the truth. You may have a friend, has some questions about this, and they do things, they believe a little different. Why do we believe what we believe? Watch. Philip is called an evangelist in Acts 21, verse 8. We know that others were evangelists, and there was a gift of evangelism. But he's the only one that's actually named. 
You with me so far? Philip is an evangelist. He has the gift of evangelism. We know that like Stephen, he has the gift of prophecy and declaring truth and preaching forth truth. He's not only evangelizing, he's going and proclaiming, heralding the gospel. He has the, the, the gift of prophecy. He has the calling and the office, we could say, of evangelism and the gift of evangelism. Jeff, why are you mentioning that? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse number 11, Paul says that Christ gave gifts to his church. And, the, and this time, the gifts are in the form of people. Watch Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers, pastor shepherd teachers. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers. We've learned recently that pastors, shepherd, teachers, bishops, elders, all interchangeable terms. And then they, are, they are a legitimate office from the Lord. In Back in chapter 6 and verse 7, the new church did not have pastor, elder, bishops. They had the apostles. And when they needed seven men, they, they chose seven men. Without having the office in the church of bishop, elder, pastors, it's like they chose the most godly, gifted, spiritual men they could. We have two of their records. Stephen's brilliant, scholarly, biblical, powerful message. And now we have this man's message that's also having these results. So Philip is an evangelist, watch, directly called by and appointed by the apostles. And yet he is not entrusted or gifted with the imparting of the Holy Spirit. Let this sink in. If Philip, who's an evangelist prophet, directly appointed by the apostles themselves... If he's not afforded the right and imparted the gift of giving the Holy Spirit through his hands, then who in the world do modern preachers or Catholic bishops think they are to bestow this gift? It is only reserved for apostles in the New Testament. Paul will lay hands on some, on some men, 12 of them, in Acts chapter number 19. He's an apostle, and here it happens here. Can I also point this out? Isn't it interesting that in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, in the major list of spiritual gifts, there is no spiritual gift listing of being able to impart the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. It is not in the spiritual gift list. Need to make a note of that. But this really happened. This is a real event. So, what happened? As a backdrop for our next note you'll take, would you please look at verse number 9. We've seen this many times. I hope you should know it by now. The question is, are we, will we remember it? Will it shape our theology? Paul writes to the Roman believers, all of them. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. You're not of the flesh. You're the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if there's any question, look at verse 9 in the middle. Is this unclear? Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, was written probably 15, closer to 20 years later than what we're reading in Acts chapter 8. This is doctrine. This, what in Acts 8, is a real event. It's a real historical event, but this is later authoritative doctrine that is written some 20 years after that event. And then we go back to 1 Corinthians 12. Flip 
flip over there if you would. Well, that's just the Romans. We probably mistook that. And I don't, I don't know. I don't see Romans 8 verse 9 as unclear. I see it as super clear. But if that wasn't enough, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes to a whole different group of people. 1 Corinthians 12, look at verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Verse number 13. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one by all believers, into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. Guys, is that kind of clear? Does that make sense? This was also written well after what we're studying in Acts. So here's my point. Yes, this happened in Acts chapter number 8. But is that outrank, clear, theological, inspired, word of God doctrine later? No, it doesn't. This puts guidelines on that and puts that in its area, its rightful place. So now we ask ourselves this question. In fact, would you go ahead and write this note? And then we'll get to our, our question that's burning in our minds. Romans 8 verse 9, 1 Corinthians 12 verses 7 and 13, along with the Acts chapter 10 Gentiles. Right now you're like, what in the world does that mean? Just write it. It'll make more sense in a few couple months. These two verses, clear verses, along with the Acts chapter 10 Gentiles, proves there is no longer a waiting period to receive the Holy Spirit once a person has trusted Christ. So once I put my faith and trust in Christ, Jeff... Is this what happened with the Samaritans? Is that what happens to us when we get saved? We, we get saved, and later on somewhere down the road, somebody's got to come and lay hands on us and pray over us, and then we'll get the Holy Spirit? No. Romans 8, 9 disproves that. 1 Corinthians 12 disproves that. And the way what happens with the Gentiles in Cornelius' house in chapter number 10 disproves that. So now here's the burning question. Isn't this the question? So, Jeff, why did this happen in chapter 8 the way it did? Why did when they believe, why did they not get the Holy Spirit right then? I'm going to propose to you two things. We only have room for one on the handout, but really they're linked together. Do y'all remember that animosity between Jews and Samaritans? Y'all remember that? It's real. So I want to propose to you that the reason there was a delay between verse 12, them believing and being saved and receiving the Spirit in verse 17, is because of this animosity. Listen. The animosity between Jews and Samaritans made it essential that the Samaritans would receive the Holy Spirit in the presence of the Jerusalem church leaders. In fact, is it an accident that the two most respected leaders in the church, these two apostles, are the ones that God uses so that the Jews would have no doubts that the Samaritans really did. It's not just a report. And we heard they received the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I believe that. No, when Peter and John come back, uh, can we go ahead and have the next note? When Peter and John come back and they say, listen, we were there. We laid our hand. We prayed. We laid our hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. That removes all doubt. The Jews now know. So why did God allow this delay? So that the Jewish church would recognize that the Samaritans are not second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm thankful for that. Praise the Lord. No second class. Doesn't matter what you've done in your past, the moment you get saved, what theology says now is you become a Christian with the Holy Spirit at that very moment. And there's not like Jewish Christians have the Holy Spirit and then the Samaritans and the Gentile Christians, they're saved, but you don't get the Holy Spirit because you're just second and third class. That doesn't exist. Can I give you one more? It's not on the handout. You say, Jeff, you said there were two. Watch. 
Not only is the delay for the sake of the Jews so that they wouldn't doubt, the delay is also for the Samaritans. Because they have to admit, we believed here, we got saved here, but we didn't receive the Spirit until here. Why? Could it be that God wanted the Samaritans to know you didn't receive the Spirit until those apostles who are Jewish came down and laid their hands on? You need to submit yourself to not just the Lord Jesus Christ, but to the teaching of His specially appointed apostles that you're going to put yourself under that. In other words, here's the two takeaways. Why the delay? So the Jewish church will know there's no second-class Christians, and so the Samaritan church would know there are no rogue Christians. There are no rogue Christians. We don't need them. We're going to kind of keep the split. No, God wanted one united church, full members, everybody unified. In other words, all this animosity, it's gone away. You're not a Jew anymore, and you're not a Samaritan anymore. We're all followers of Christ together, all with the Holy Spirit. And they needed to see that we come under their authority. Wearsby writes it this way. This will make more sense, Lord willing, in a few in a few months. Wearsby writes, quote, God, please get what I'm about to say. God's pattern for today is given in Acts 10. His pattern for today. Here it is. The sinner hears the gospel, believes, receives the gift of the Spirit, then is baptized. Everybody catch what I just said. The pattern today is seen in Acts 10. We'll get there. The lost person hears the gospel, believes the gospel, receives the Holy Spirit in that moment. Then they get baptized. And that's the pattern for today. Would you write this down? Wiersbe is so correct when he writes, It is dangerous to base any doctrine or practice only, note the word only, on what is recorded in Acts chapters 1 through 10. Be careful that you don't, Base a whole doctrine and a whole practice based only on what happens between Acts chapter 1. Why? He writes, for you might be building on that which was transitional. Be careful. You might be building on that which was transitional. I'm going to give you a moment because I want to make this point. So Jeff, are you downplaying what happens here in chapter 8 where... They're saved, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. Guys, listen. That is an absolutely real event. This really happened. That is so. That happened that way. But, so did the Red Sea crossing. And so did manna. Physical manna. And so did this rock in the wilderness that supplied water. And so did the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a real event. This is a true historical event. But also also are these other things. And if you go through life thinking, I'm not going to get a job and earn a living. I'm going to go out there tomorrow morning and God is going to have my food and our food just fall down in the yard. Okay, good luck with that. You're going to starve. Because what... That is not a command and an expectation. That is a real event that was exceptional. It was an exception for that time period. Real, but an exception. I sincerely ask this question. Why is it? I really ask this. I want this explained. Why is it that some Christians just stubbornly ignore clear doctrine that was written post-transitional time in favor of a historical record that was exceptional and transitional? Why do you just choose to do that, Catholics? Why do you just choose to do that? And even if it were true, which it isn't, Philip wasn't afforded that. 
Only apostles did this. I really wonder. Because you've got to do some serious, like, I don't care about this later clear revelation of doctrine. I choose to base my beliefs on what, on what yeah, it really happened. But okay, you're messing your theology up. So that brings us to the last part of this, first, of this second point. They received the Spirit. Why is that important? Would you write this down? Having the Holy Spirit is a test of whether a person is really saved. Having the Holy Spirit is a test of whether a person is really saved. Do y'all know what's not a test of whether a person's really saved? Let me tell you what's not a test. Saying you're a Christian. Real Christians will say they're a Christian, but not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Saying you're a Christian, that's not the test. Having the evidence of the Holy Spirit is one of the tests. Now watch. Let me tell you what's not a test of the evidence of the Holy Spirit. This is not a... An evidence of the test of the Holy Spirit. Speaking in tongues. Now why would I say that? You say, Jeff, why would you say that? Appearing to speak in tongues is not the evidence of having the Holy Spirit. Did you catch how I said that? Why? Because it can be faked. Jeff, do you believe that everybody who appears to speak in, in tongues... Are faking? Absolutely not. I know it's a real gift in the history of church. We preached earlier on that. Back in chapter 2, I believe it was. I have my stance about where it was, and you can go hear that, and that's fine. We're not going to argue about that. Here's what I'll guarantee you. I'll promise you today in the upstate of South Carolina, there's going to be many, many people who will fake the gift of speaking in tongues. They're going to fake it. So that's not the test. So what is the test? I ask you this morning, let's go back to the basics. I'm challenging your thinking right now. I want you to start forming a list because I did this the other day. It hit me like, Jeff, hello, duh, you're missing the main point. Not main, one of the main points. Why did God give us the Holy Spirit? They didn't have it. They got it. It's important. Why do we Christians need the Holy Spirit? Let your mind go. Because when you start forming that list of why we have the Holy Spirit, then all of a sudden you'll start being able to form your list of the evidences that a person has the Holy Spirit. Why does God give us the Spirit? Let me offer a few. They're not on the, hand, on, on the screen. Hear them though. As I'm doing this, I challenge every person here. Be evaluating yourself. This matters. Because there's people in the room right now that you don't have these evidences. Examine yourself, Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. See if you really are in the faith. So why did God give us the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you a list. Here we go. To give us assurance of our salvation and of our status as really being the children of God. He gave us the Spirit so that we'll know that we are the children of God. So that we'll have assurance of our salvation. If you're here this morning, if I were to come up to you and say, Hey, are you a Christian? If your answer is... Boy, I don't know. I hope so. I know what you are. You're not saved. You said, what? You don't have any right. If your answer is, I don't know if I'm saved or not. I hope I am. You're not saved. Christians have faith. Faith is how we get saved. If I just described you, you're in serious trouble. 
The Holy Spirit is given. I know that I'm a Christian. You say, if I ever doubt, it's not that, I mean, it's not a moment of doubt, but I mean your life. I know I'm a child of God. That's why he gave us the Spirit. If you don't have that, you're in a mess right now. You need to get saved today. You ought to really be paying attention extra close to the message from here on. Why does he give us the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 12. Paul says, so that we will have understanding of God's word, his promises, and all the provisions that he gives us. There was a lady here last week. I'd never met her to my knowledge. She said something really amazing after the service. Come to find out she's a new Christian. Brand new Christian. She doesn't even know it. She said it surprisingly. She was saying it complimentary to me. But it wasn't that. You say, what'd she say? Y'all know how long I preach. Brand new Christian. Stood right back there and she says, I understood everything you said. Wow. I read the Bible and sometimes it doesn't all make sense. But in the whole and in the main, and if I keep studying, it does come alive. If you sat here week after week, and this just goes over your head, and all you're thinking is, I have to come because my mom and dad make me. When is this going to be over? That's a big problem. If this book is closed to you, there's a problem. You've been given the Holy Spirit to Christians so we'll understand the Word of God. Number three. Not note three. Third reason. God has given us the Holy Spirit so that we'll have spiritual strength. We all struggle, but Christians have more spiritual strength than unsaved people. God gave us the Holy Spirit because He produces Fruit and evidence, they're listed in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance. All these things that I can't produce myself, suddenly I'm like, I have that when the Holy Spirit's in control. That's why He gave the Spirit. Do you have the evidence of the Spirit? Here we go. He gives us the Spirit to convict us when we start moving towards sin. Now listen, we have been having some nonsense go on among people who say they're Christians and their life is just to wallow in the bonds of iniquity. If you can head towards sin and all you have is your conscience says, uh-oh, don't do this, I don't want to get caught by a human being. But you could just keep blowing by knowing that what you're doing is sinful and you have no great burden of your sin. That's a problem. You don't have the Holy Spirit inside. Which means you are not his, according to Romans 8 and 9. If you're just out there wallowing in sin, and you don't have conviction, big problem. He gives us the Spirit to empower our spiritual gifts. He gives spiritual gifts. That's great. We have it. I need you to actually kick it in and use it. He does it. He guides us through our moments. He guides us in the moment. He guides us in our days. He guides us in our years. Why does he give us the Spirit? You say, Jeff, why would you walk behind the piano the other, just a moment ago? This is a Yamaha piano. You know why I know? Because I just went and looked. And on the front, there's a seal. There's a mark. It says it's a Yamaha. One of the reasons God gives His people the Holy Spirit is it puts a mark. Not a seal as in like wrapping up food so it doesn't go bad. We're sealed by Christ and... Christ is, we're in Christ and Christ is in the Father. We're still, and no doubt the Holy Spirit helps seal us that way. But really, this seal is a seal of authentication. And I thought about that. Lord, who's this seal for? 
Who's this Mark? That one's one of mine. That one right there, I put my spirit on. That's one of mine. I don't know fully who it's for. God knows who's his. Maybe it's for these other spirit beings that we can't see. And they have, they have no doubt who's in this room that's God's people and who isn't. They could tell. They go right up and down this row and that row and that one. And these spirit beings, angels and demons, recognize that's one of God's children. And that one and that one. And, that one, and the rest are not. He, he gives us the spirit to authenticate. Those are mine. Leaving no doubt. Number three this morning. Now we've got to get back and finish with this guy, Simon. Verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Y'all with me here? Here we go. He offers them money. That, that tells me two things out of this verse. Number one, what does that tell us? Something about how the Spirit was given was visible. You could see it. We're not told. Jeff, what do you think it is? Well, like others I've read, if I had to guess, they probably spoke in tongues. And they probably started prophesying like in ways. And Simon's looking at this. And this is amazing. And so watch. Here's another little hint. Hey, can I see you two guys? I'll give you money. You show me how to do that. Give me that power. What does that tell us a hint about Simon's magic? Does that give a hint? Apparently, Simon's magic is such that it could be shared and taught. And maybe he paid sums of money from other people. Who knows how far and wide he went to get his power. He believes that Peter and John are like master magicians. You guys got to share your secrets. I just got to be able to. This is, what Philip's been doing is awesome. I can't do that. I want to. This is like, this is top shelf. Please. Next thing I want you to get, do you see the absolute arrogance in this man? Do you see his addiction? He is addicted to glory and praise. He has just recently heard about Jesus. He's just recently heard about Jesus. He sees this, and in his mind, here's, he has gone around convincing himself and everyone else. He's so great that when this happens, he sees himself as just bypassing Philip and like, hey, hey, do y'all know what the three of us could do with this thing? You see what he's done? I'm new to this whole thing, but I belong with you guys. I belong up here. He is no doubt shocked and blown away when Peter says what he says. He probably wasn't expecting it. He probably thought, how much you got? Well, I got a lot. Instead, what does he hear? Look at verse 20. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart's not right before God. Repent, therefore. And I think this was said with some serious tone. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He wasn't expecting that. If you're taking notes, write this down. Peter has uncovered a major miscalculation of Simon. First thing, and again, we won't have the whole note till later, I don't think. Simon overvalued the worth, the power, write that word, the power of money. Simon way overvalued the power of money. He really thought, man, my money is super powerful. I'll pay you. Let's negotiate. What, what will it take? I've got to be able to, i got to know how to do this. Dude, you have seriously overestimated the power of your money. 
Y'all realize that if Peter, just pretend for a moment, Peter and John could sell this. It just so happens we are able to give this ability to other people. Do y'all seriously think they would give it away for money? They want everybody to have the Holy Spirit because that means people are saved if they have the Holy Spirit. They want everyone. But this is a decision by God. Only God gives the Holy Spirit. If they could sell it, they never would sell it. They never would. That's one of the things that drove Martin Luther crazy back in the 1500s because the Catholic Church was telling everyone, sorry, here we go again, but the shoe fits. They deserve it. They were selling these things called indulgences to people that, hey, you go out and sin, and the worse you're sin, the more it's going to cost you. But if you'll give the Catholic Church some money, we'll write you a piece of paper, and it's an indulgence, and your sin is forgiven because the church has access to this thing called the treasury of merits. And there's these merits and credits, spiritual credits, and for the right price, we'll give you, and you'll get forgiveness. Here's what I would say to them. If the church has access to forgiveness, and we get to give it out how we want, we would give it away for free. Wouldn't we want people to be forgiven? It was a hoax. Write it down. Gift in verse, what is it, 19? Nope, verse 20. Gift means that neither salvation nor the Holy Spirit can be purchased. He can't be earned. Salvation can't be earned. Salvation can't be purchased. Like, no amount of money. Like, what if I got a lot? Like, like what, if, what if I put a B in front of the yuns? Like, billion. No. No amount of money. No stopping of sin. No starting of living a good, clean life. You can never. You can never make up for the sin you've already committed. It's a gift of God. And the Holy Spirit is a gift of God in fact, Stuart Custer words it this way. He says, Simon's attempt to buy what God alone can give shows he's a stranger to grace. And that should have now transitioned to the next thought that should be in some of your minds. Like, wait, what? So Jeff, wait a minute. There was another thing that came up in our text that is causing me a little dilemma. Would you look at verse 13? Let's answer that. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He's seeing signs and great miracles performed, and he's amazed. Even Simon himself believed. So what is the Bible teaching here? Jeff, do you think Simon actually became a Christian? It says he believed. I'm going to offer to you the following. Let's hit them quickly. Our statement that I'm going to offer to you is this. Simon's belief was not a saving faith. Simon's belief was not a saving faith. Why would I say that? Quickly, let's hit them. Number one, the word believe in the Bible sometimes can mean simply intellectual assent. It can mean intellectual assent. I believe that to be true. James chapter 2, verse number 19. James writes, so you believe in God and you think you do well because you believe in God. Don't you know that the devils also believe? The devils know information about God. They know Jesus died on the cross. They believe it intellectually. They assent to that as truth, but they are not trusting it as truth. Number two, why would you say this man, he did not have saving faith? What was his faith in? This is important. This is a key one. He believed that Philip's miracles were authentic and real as compared to his own. Undeniable. Here's the problem with that kind of faith. Write it down. Faith that is based only on signs is insufficient. Faith based only on signs is insufficient. And I want to share something here because it's probably in this room. I have nobody in mind, by the way. 
I promise, I have nobody, I, I, I have nobody in mind. I can't remember anybody like this. But if I were to ask you, hey, could you share with me your salvation testimony? And the main thrust of your salvation testimony is that you start describing some events and a low point in your life and some things were happening. And then you, the main thrust of your testimony is some phenomenon happened and you had a feeling and a sense and maybe there was an aura or a sound or you saw something and that was followed by a sense of peace. If that's the main part of your testimony, then I would remind you that faith based only on signs is insufficient. You say, Jeff, what's your point? I'm not saying that an event didn't happen and a phenomenon and you had some sensation and you felt something. What I'm saying is saving faith is squarely lasered on Jesus. It's laser focused on the person of Jesus. I'm trusting him. I'm trusting the Bible and the promises of the word of God about Jesus. That's where my faith is with feelings of peace or without feelings of peace. I've read, I've read before on sheets of paper, people describing their conversion. And it's literally like, where is the part where I, I know I'm going to heaven because I'm trusting Jesus and him alone? That's not in there. It's all this other stuff. And this preacher and that preacher, and he, I went down in front and I prayed. Awesome. It's great. Your testimony needs to be, I trusted Christ. Third, Luke never says that Simon received the Holy Spirit. It's not in here. Could it be he just watched it? He's a spectator. He's not a recipient. He's not a participant in receiving the Holy Spirit. As you're writing there, I'm going to give you one that is not on the screen. The word repent that Peter tells him in verse number 22, usually reserved for lost people. Yes, Christians repent. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I believe it is. Yes, Christians repent. Christians repent. But the word is usually aimed and geared toward lost people. Next one I do want you to write is the word perish in verse 20. It's an extremely strong word. I would never use this word with, any of, with a safe person. It's a very strong word. Why would you use this for a Christian? In fact, N.T. Wright translates verse 20 this way. He translates it this way where Peter tells Simon, You and your silver belong in hell. Let that sink in. Is this a saved man? Would Peter tell a saved man, you know what? You offer us money. You and your silver belong in hell. I would never say that to a saved person. That's pretty strong. Y'all think, man, Jeff got mean a while ago. Peter, you, you probably wouldn't want Peter to preach here. Might not like it. Though he'd probably preach shorter. I'm assuming. I'm assuming. Two more. Verse 23 describes a lost person much more than a saved person. Again, I'm going to borrow from N.T. Wright. You can look at verse 23 for yourself. N.T. Wright translates the meaning of that this way. It's as though Peter looks at Simon and says, I can see that you are still stuck in the bitter poison of, and chains of unrighteousness. I can see you're still stuck in the bitter poison and chains of unrighteousness. That's not what you say to a saved person. And then lastly, on this note, Notice what Simon is concerned about. Verse 24, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Did you catch his message? Hey, you know what you need to do? You need to repent, like change your whole way of thinking of what's going on in your heart. you got to change, and you need to pray. Will you pray that judgment doesn't come upon me? 
The man is only concerned about judgment. He has no concern about repentance or prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, what I just discovered is what's going to be the problem for some people in this room unless it changes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not prophesying about any specific person. I just know on a group this size what's going to happen at the day of judgment. There are going to be people standing before the Lord and they're going to get a rude awakening because you said some words at a certain age at a moment when you got scared of hell but there was no repentance in the life. And you weren't actually having an encounter with God. There's a lot of people. And that's where we've got to check ourselves. Do I have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life? I'm almost done. Hang with me. Would you look again fresh eyes at verse 22? Look at verse 22. Did anything strike you odd there? I'll give you money. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What's odd about that? What two words? If possible. Can I ask y'all something seriously? If, let's pretend for a moment. Let's say Simon is a saved person. If that is true, then what Peter says here contradicts 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we, saved people, confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no if possible. He's talking to an unsaved man. So then that still raises another question. Why would he say if possible? Follow me. Peter's concern and his doubt and his uncertainty is not about God's ability to forgive him. It's not about God's willingness to forgive him. His doubt is, I don't know that you're sincere. I don't know that you'll ask. I don't know that you'll repent. That's the doubt. I read this, and here's what I think is going on in Peter's mind. You're not only lost, friend, but you may have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is the unpardonable sin. He will withdraw from you. He will abandon you. And when the Holy Spirit abandons a person, they have no chance to be saved because it is the Spirit that draws a person to God. I think that's what he may be saying. Like, if possible, if you had not already crossed the line, you better repent. And what did Simon do? Will you pray for me? I just saw you guys pray, and I saw it answered there. You prayed in verse 15, and it happened in verse 17. Will you guys pray for me that judgment doesn't come on me? Now listen, if you're a Christian, you ought to pray. You ought to intercede for people. We should use our audience with God to intercede for people. But hear me well. Repentance and salvation, when the rubber meets the road... This is something that ultimately has to be done between a single person and God themselves. Nobody can repent. They, other, somebody else can repent in their mind. That does not mean you've repented in yours. Somebody else can confess their sins. Somebody else can put their faith and trust in Christ. They are trusting Christ. That is not going to help you trust Christ. You have to trust Christ. Let me word it this way. True saving faith never asks someone else to pray the sinner's prayer for them. Hey, Krista, will you ask God not to bring judgment on me? God, would you please not let judgment happen on Jeff? She can pray and intercede. But ultimately what has to happen is I have to go to God. God, have you ever done this? Not worded just like this. Have you ever done something like this, God? I know that I am in line to receive the judgment of God, but I believe you put the ju my judgment on Jesus. Natalie read it to us out of Isaiah 53. I believe you put my judgment I deserve. You've already put it on Jesus. Will you let his judgment for me that he took, will you let it count for me? You promised you would, and so I receive it right now. You ever done that? You've got to have that personal 
repentance, that personal receiving of God's forgiveness. So here's the last note. Why is this even in our Bible? Why so much focus on this guy? Church historians and early church fathers said this guy ends up leading leading a doctrine called Gnosticism. And some say he was the leader of the cult called the Simonians. A whole thing was developed called simony in which people try to buy church offices during the Middle Ages. A lot of corruption. Word has it, the early church says, the early church records after the Bible was written, they say this guy ended up being a real thorn in the side of Peter. One even, some even said that Simon Peter and Simon the magician ended up having a miracle contest and Simon Peter defeated him. This guy was a nonstop thorn in the side of the church. Why is this in here? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, to show that the gifts of God cannot be bought. Can't buy the gifts of God. They're gifts. Salvation's free. You cannot buy it. Number two, to show that water baptism can never save a person. Water baptism can never save a person. This man was baptized. I'm going to make a statement. Some of y'all are going to think I'm exaggerating. I'm not exaggerating. There are billions. Listen, there are billions of people in hell right now that were baptized on earth. Billions. It doesn't save you. It's something we do after we get saved to announce that we're a Christian doesn't save you at all. It's important. While I'm here, can I add this? Philip baptized a man that wasn't even a Christian. But he's not rebuked for it. He's not called out. He's not scolded. He's not put in a bad light. Because this is important. The Bible gives no waiting period, watching period, from when a person says they got saved and they want to be baptized. We don't, like, give a waiting time period where the church looks and evaluates their life to see if they meet a certain level of repentance. Do they have the, the evidence of repentance? All we can do is take people at their word that they mean it when they say they've trusted Christ and they want to go public and that He's my Lord and my Savior and I will live with allegiance to Him. If they go out after that and blow it, it is embarrassing, but we're not to answer for that. There's no waiting period described in the Scripture. Number three. So all we do is take people at their word. Why is this even in the Bible? Perhaps it's here to show just how close people can get to salvation but miss it. Can I finish right here? Simon saw the power of God. Simon Heard the clear gospel. Simon assented intellectually that it was true and that the man of God's miracles were real. He was baptized and by so doing publicly announced. He would have had to do this. Publicly announced his allegiance. to Saw the power of God. Heard the clear gospel. Said he believed it. Gave a public testimony. Got baptized. Followed the man of God. But all signs indicate this man's in hell today. I said something a while ago that you may not have thought. When I said billions are in hell who've been baptized on earth, this next one, you can look it up. It's in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus himself backs this up. Not a few. 
not a few, many, 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 many people in this life are convinced they are saved and on their way to heaven. They are convinced of it. They just know it. But they will die and go to hell. Many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils and do many wonderful works? And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. How? They will be shocked. Is there a chance, is there a chance that is you? I don't care who you are. You're like, Jeff, do you not know who I am? You know how long I've been here. You know what I do? I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you are watching. Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? I said I'm a Christian. Anybody can say it. Do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you came up a while ago in that little survey we took and you came up empty, you're in big trouble. You should be worried. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Did what I just said is a fact. And I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying this because it's a fact. Many will say, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, depart. I never knew you. You were never saved. Didn't lose your salvation. Never were saved. Does that scare you and rock you? Or you're like, Jeff, that is true. We need to pray. When you read your Bible, does it make sense? Yes, there's difficulties, but in the whole, has what I've said today make sense? I'm not saying you have to agree with everything I'm saying, but I'm saying in the whole, unless I'm a total heretic up here, you should have been like, that is what they're saying. Yes, that's right. Are you convicted when you sin? If you're not convicted when you sin, that's a big problem. Can you look back over the years of your life since the time you've been saved and notice, I've been guided by God, and I've made a lot of mistakes, but God has guided me. Can you say, man, when I was weak, he made me strong. He's, he's sanctifying me. He's changing me. I can't believe it. I'm not doing it. I'm not bragging. But from the time I got saved until here, y'all know how some people's Christian life, if we were to arc it, it goes like this. They made a profession of faith here, and their life went downward. That's a problem. Does your life, by God's grace and his doing, is it moving? Yes. Blow it. Blow it. Get right. Blow it. Confess, blow it, confess. But in the main, you are moving towards the Holy Spirit is doing this. If you don't have that going on. Hey, teenagers, middle schoolers, if you just sin and it never bothers you. High schoolers, you sin, never bothers you. It's a big problem. I know we have a rough culture. I know there's a lot of bad influence. But the Holy Spirit in you is stronger than men. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do you have the mark of the Holy Spirit on your life? If not, and the Lord has spoken to you this morning, I want to invite you right now, just right where you're at. Why don't you just do this right now? The Holy Spirit has not abandoned you if He's convicted you of a lostness in your life. Maybe you've been baptized and told everybody you're saved. Maybe you're faithful to come to Grace View and you listen to a lot of teaching and preaching. But man, you look at your life and it's like, I just don't have evidence. I have no love, joy, peace, no guidance. I'm hardly ever sure that I'm, I'm a Christian. I doubt my salvation all the time. Is it time for you to just by yourself, we can't do it. Is it time for you just to go to God right now in your own words, in your own words, just let him know. Like, talk to him right now. God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I'm in trouble. 
judgment's coming and I don't want judgment. Lord, I realize today, Jesus and the salvation. Won't you just tell God this? God, I realize your salvation is absolutely free. Nothing I can do. I'm not adding to what Jesus did. It's free. You've already put my punishment for my sin on Christ. Would you let it count for me? Would you ask him? God, I'm asking to today, would you let the punishment that Christ received, let it count for me? Go ahead and go the whole way. God, would you save me from my sins? Me, the sinner. God, would you save me, the sinner? Please save me from my sins. Through Christ. And when you ask him, believe. Believe that he'd done it. Don't doubt. Don't doubt him. That's offensive. Ask him and then believe it and receive it. Because he says, yes, I will. You, You trust me? See him offering you that salvation. Father, as we close in prayer this morning, I pray that this text will churn in our lives this week. That we'll evaluate ourselves. Lord, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We do nothing else today. Thank you for the Holy Spirit and all that he gives us. We're indebted to you for that. Thank you for your son who makes it all possible. In his name we pray. Amen. Have a great week. I'll see you when.